Hello. In today's episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast, we're talking to Nathan Long from Hargreaves Lansdowne about what value for money means to him. Welcome to the 26th episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast. I hope our listeners are well and are enjoying the podcast. And as as ever, I couldn't be happier to be joined by my co-host, Nico Aspinall. And Nico, you've got a new day job. I do, I do. I've uh, abandoned the independent consulting life to uh, become head of product advocacy for Newton Investment Management. So... um, yeah, delighted to be aboard. I think the basically the job is to talk up uh, everything we do on sustainability here at Newton, um, which I you know is is pretty market leading. Um, but we've uh, yeah wanting to translate that into getting a bit of client understanding and a bit of noise about it. So yeah, I'm an, I'm the noisy one. Brilliant. Um, and, uh, well, so con- congratulations on that. And, um, but, but as a you know, I'm sure you're going to have to have some form of disclosure around that, aren't you? <laughs> well, I can start by saying uh, that my views do not necessarily represent Newton's, uh, and I'm not here to talk about any specific products. Um, so all of that good kind of mythid stuff. Um, but yeah, I think in general, Darren, you know, you and I are going to continue to be how we are. And uh, yeah, this is this is not a Newton podcast. Uh, I'm someone who podcasts and also works for Newton. So um, yeah, that's Very good. really exciting. Very exciting for me. Very good and very clear. Um, so it's been a bit of a busy week um, this week in pensions, um, but who better than Nathan Long from Hargreaves Lansdowne to help us unpick and make sense of it all? Uh, welcome, Nathan. Hi, thanks for, thanks for having me on. So Nathan, you're a senior policy analyst uh, at Hargreaves Lansdowne, and you've been there 20 years. Uh, that's, that's an impressive stint. Well done. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, uh, I, uh, we got twenty years this year. Got a cake and everything. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's all going well. Well, as I'm as as far as I'm aware, they've not told me otherwise. You must have seen a lot of change in that time. Yes, yeah. There's been a well, an awful lot of change. Obviously, we sort of uh, the three of us will sort of work on the policy side, don't we? So you see that regulatory change, but obviously. From our perspective, tech change it has been massive over that period of time, and also the change in, I guess, the shape of our our investor base. So it went from, I guess, previously being people who were sort of towards the point of retirement who'd already accrued their wealth, and uh, more and more each year you're sort of seeing uh, new, younger people coming to the world of investment. I guess partly through uh, lockdown and also partly through that kind of um, recognition that actually people need to take personal responsibility for their for their life after work. So, mm. uh, yeah, definitely interesting, interesting changes throughout time. Well, I'm sure we're going to pick up on some of that, uh, not least with, uh, you know, pensions, value for money stuff a bit later in the podcast, but also, you know, maybe we could pick up on your views on the, the lifetime ISA as well, because I know you're a big advocate of that. Yeah, happy to. Cool. Awesome. Um, well, look, so uh, you guys, uh, you listeners, you know the drill. 
Uh, as ever, we start with the news, but um, we're going to try this week not to not to spend the entire podcast talking about the news. Um, so uh, we've we've agreed a rule that we're not going to talk about the very biggest piece of news, the VFM consultation response, uh, until later into the podcast. So uh, with that in mind, Nathan, what have you brought in for us? So uh, with that in mind, the, the thing actually that, that struck me most was um, the Treasury's uh, response to its consultation on disclosure rules. And this, on the face of it, might seem quite niche for pensions, but actually it's how that might kind of, I guess, translate into what the future looks like from a regulatory perspective that I think is really interesting. So broadly, the output is that uh, the powers will be pushed onto the FCA to sort of crack on and, and change disclosure the disclosure re- regime. Uh, around investments but actually that piece of work that the FCA is already consulting on is really clear in its direction of travel around layering of information around moving away from a sort of terms and conditions style disclosure uh, to individuals to expect them to understand and navigate that into a more uh, a sort of more coherent digital first method of of, of disclosure of information and 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 when you wrap that in with the consumer duty and when you wrap that in with uh potential changes to the advice guidance boundary we think it can be transformative so one tiny piece of uh, i guess piece of legislation that's out uh yesterday but actually could be transformative in the longer term so this um it, the aim of this is uh, to stop companies hiding behind click terms and conditions and thinking that they're covered is that right yeah although i think it's kind of more the the sort of pressure is coming from uh the industry to say look click terms and conditions don't work mm. us having to disclose like this doesn't work people don't understand it and therefore they're not making necessarily the right decisions when it comes to disclosures the key inf- investor document documentation just doesn't work there yeah. is a better way yeah you know, allow us to innovate to deliver that information better. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Um, Does this go right away across the industry? Is this sort of focused on uh, like the end user and retail, or is this uh, like investment managers just situate us a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, the focus really is is retail investors and how they make decisions. So it's that key investor documentation for the retail investor that's that's kind of, I guess certainly our area of interest um so and i guess you know clearly this is where the the balance lies because what's the most important information for that retail investor to make a decision because if you flood them with everything they're not going to do that and obviously you know when you move into an institutional investor world they're they're more likely to be able to sort of take account of all of the information that you're sort of disclosing at that point in time so slightly different audiences yeah interesting one to watch. Indeed. Uh, when, when does this come into force? Soon. <laughs> uh, the, well, the, it's kind of then, now goes into the FCA world, I if see. that makes sense. So they're actually already, yeah. they've already done a discussion paper on it, but it's then what's the consultation next? So we're sort of still waiting on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Um, right, Darren, what have you got? So um, I'm going to, I'm going to refer back to some of the news that we've had on the pension side of things this week, um, but not talk about value for money, given we 
given us quite a firm instruction there, Nico, not to. <laughs> um, but, you know, I spend... You've never just... listened to any of my instructions before, that's, that, that's, so. that is That is true. So, you know, I spent a number of years working at um, two master trusts and, you know, um, I do miss doing lots and lots of work on smallpox. And I was so <laughs> glad to see, um, you know, the government finally setting a direction of travel to deal with the, the millions, um, tens of millions of smallpox that are being created. And, um, you know, again, sort of well covered by the pensions press. Um, and you know, I think what they're looking to do is to have, um, you know, some authorised consolidators. So it's a consolidator model rather than a pure uh, portfolios member um, with some form of central clearinghouse to, 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 to make sure that this um, all, all operates effectively. Um, Obviously, the devil is in the detail with this stuff. So we're going to, you know, they've, they've got another consultation uh, for eight or nine weeks. Um, you know, we, they always do consultations over the summer, don't they? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but they've got another consultation on the detail. But also, um, the, 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 the thing that really piqued my interest on this, and we've talked about this before in other fora, Nathan, was it's leaving the door open yeah, to a pot for life approach. Um, and you know, um, you know, there's, there's 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 pros and cons of the different model. But we talk a lot about engagement, and we talk a lot about connecting people with their pensions, you know. And and and, and there's got to be something in that. And I think that you know, this consultation, you know, not as a short term solution, but maybe as a medium to longer term solution, could take a proper look at how our pensions um, architecture is is actually structured. Mm. Yeah, well, having a central clearinghouse is a is an important first step, isn't it? So, um, you might at some stage in the future see see future government, future regulation using that kind of central clearinghouse for other things, right? Indeed, because um, because the Australian architecture is that they have a central payroll clearinghouse, don't they? So, so essentially, as a company, you you put your money into that central payroll, and it can go to you know the master trust or the, uh, the superannuation uh, scheme that you you set up. And indeed, the others that the member has, yeah, the, the employee, yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that was the first. Mm -hmm. I was, was going to say that's the first thing that struck me was they the sort of doors left open for lifetime pension into the future. Mm. Um, but for me, it was all about that. The architecture that you build out now is essentially the precursor to allowing that. So it's kind of exactly. Yeah. That's it's incredibly important that that's factored into the build because you don't want to sort of, you know, limit any potential future changes um if you focus so too narrowly on just solving the initial problem i think yeah would be my take on that yeah although um you know i think they they talk in the consultation about needing primary legislation and secondary legislation so it's going to be a little while for for this to come into into force anyway um yeah but you know this this problem is one that's growing for the the large master trust and it's growing rapidly and yeah. um you know given where we are in the political cycle I think we'd be very lucky to get a pensions bill in the next year. I don't know. Um, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yeah, it could, um, you know, it could be a few years before we have the legislative underpinning for this, and, mm -hmm. and also some of the other announcements that we had um, earlier in the week. But, but on the flip side, this is potentially something, and, and I don't know what the Labour position is, but potentially something that there's kind of good cross-party understanding that this is an issue that you have to solve it. That could be. I mean, I, you know, who knows how our politics is going to work in the next uh, two, three, four, five years, right? But it could be something that Labour just pick up and run with 
um, as opposed to seeing you know party politics come into. Yeah, potentially. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a problem that's relevant um, no matter where you are on the political divide. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, interesting. So, so what have you got for us, Nico? Yeah, I, look, I wanted to talk about the Mansion House speech um, of of Jeremy Hunt. I think uh, so. We're recording on Wednesday. It was on uh, Monday night. It was. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I guess the headline uh, that has been widely picked up is the top nine DC schemes uh, are committed to making five percent private markets investments uh, by twenty thirty. Um, which sounds good on paper. I think if you scratch the surface and think about what the top nine is, um, I was talking about this with someone last night and said, okay, so Nest, are they in? Yes. Uh, the People's Pension, are they in? No. Okay, mm. so <laughs> already we're, we're, we're now going to have to haggle as to what the top nine is. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, we've, we, Darren, you and I have talked on this podcast a lot about the kind of illiquids, um, private markets, investment in DC. Um, and I think we're probably on the same page that, you know, it's, it, it's desirable, but comes with a lot of issues. Yep. Um, and so now we're hearing some of the bigger schemes, certainly some of the, the I think all of the bigger providers, uh, kind of committed to making this happen. So, um, no doubt everyone's very positive about it. Um, my biggest cynicism is the date of 2030. Um, which is a long way away uh, mm. for an asset class that already exists. Um, so, you know, and also I was doing a bit of uh, maths behind, uh, you know, uh, uh, th- 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 this morning. So I think the DC industry is kind of growing at about 10 to 15% a year on the basis of contributions. Right. So, you know, you, you probably, the sooner you start on this, the easier it's going to be for you to make this commitment. Um, and if you leave it too long, and I suspect a number of these, these providers may well, um, not least because you know they're, they're not actually large enough in the in the entities we're talking about to, to kind of do this uh, particularly cost effectively, then I think we're going to probably see very little movement on this certainly before the general election. Right. Um, and then you know does does this matter to Labour in the same way? We obviously had Rachel Reeves uh, talking about I can't remember exactly the language, but an innovation fund. Um, so yeah, uh, interesting. But I, you know, I was sort of scratching the surface a bit in a number of different dimensions. wasn't wasn't like desperately convinced by it. It has to be said. Any views on that, Nathan? Um, so my my view's always been that this is kind of you just need a couple of the big master trusts to allocate, and then almost it becomes a hygiene factor um, mm-hmm. within workplace default design. So it's it's a little bit like where we've seen with, with ESG. Um, initially, that was something that you know wasn't adopted universally, and then rather than it, it was kind of more in the master trust world because it almost became the norm. You were the outlier if you didn't have it, and I think the same will probably be set true here. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, in terms of the the lag period, uh, I don't know. I mean, I when Nico was talking, my, my initial thoughts were, you know, is there the pipeline of opportunities? I think what's interesting to me is that they, um, I think any thoughts about it being, you know, focus on UK have gone away and it's just about mm. a- accessing private markets, which from all the conversations I've ever had on this, it's, you know, everyone's thinking about the global, it's, it's about ac- the ability to access the opportunity, not about being dictated to where, where to invest the money. So I think, yeah. 
it might just be the catalyst that kind of shifts things along. And then if people are investigating the opportunity, it's their decision at trustee level as to whether they want to invest or not. That's got to be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll come back. But Dara, did you did you kind of have a reaction to this? Uh, a bit of a publicity stunt in a way. Um, so, you know, I think, we, we, you know, we, we were talking to Andrew Warwick Thompson a couple of weeks ago. You know, and I thought he made some really powerful arguments that around the fact that, you know, if schemes and if trustees aren't actively looking at different asset classes to achieve their objectives, you know, are, are they actually meeting their fiduciary duty? Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's good propaganda. It's lovely to say that, you know, you've signed up to this pledge and it's good for the government to say they've got these household names behind them. You know, I think it depends what actually happens, um, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a catalyst, um, but yeah, is it going to fundamentally shift the, the dial on things? Don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, it's sort of really interesting, I think, what the objective is. So uh, obviously, if, you're, if it's the Chancellor of the Exchequer who stands up and announces these things, he's really talking about UK PLC and growth. He is. Um, uh, but then, as you say, there's this sort of dilution which says it's not, you know, the actual announcement is about private markets. Um, which, you know, from a global perspective, 50% US, from a private markets perspective, maybe 80, 85% US. So, you know, who are we growing? Um, that would be a big, a big challenge uh, for, for, from my perspective. Um, and then I'm not sure it counts as a separate news story, but I'm going to try and pretend it isn't. Um, uh, Helen, Helen Thomas in the FT today wrote a column about uh, the government's delayed and confused pension strategy um, and uh, pulled together pieces about CDC, um, uh, uh, I think decumulation and this, uh, to kind of go, well, okay, so what's the actual strategy here? Um, and, you know, it seems to be that there's a lot of promises, but not necessarily kind of forward motion on this. So, um, yeah, I thought she she's... Uh, yeah, she's sort of perked her ears up in the last year or so on pensions and mm. um, doing a good job, good job over there at the FT. Um, and yeah, wrote an interesting little, um, I don't know what you call it, like column thought piece type thing in the, in the FT. Um, yeah, delayed and confused. I was like, okay, that takes me back a bit. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, interesting. I haven't actually um, seen that article, but I think that, you know, what we've had um, this year in particular you know, is a set of coordinated announcements, yeah, mm. um, with the government trying to join some of the dots between those different announcements. Um, you know, that leads to, you know, consultation overload. Um, yeah. But we, you know, the industry has been arguing for a while that, you know, what's the bigger picture on this? Yeah, well, how does mm. this all fit together? Um, and I think having the consultations out at the same time does does actually help with that. I think mm. I do still think what's missing though is that overarching narrative, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The the um, a, a piece that pulls it all together, um, not just about value for money or not just about productive finance, but actually goes to the heart of you know what we want this system, yeah. And I mean that yeah. system in the widest sense to actually achieve. So yeah. you know I'm sure we'll pick up on this a bit later, but you know it needs to include you know the longer term direction of travel and policy on the state pension. Yeah, um, pensions you know are special to us. Um, they're not always special universally, so it needs to sort of consider you know other products and other ways of um, you know consumers meeting needs. Um, you know for for, for 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 investing and and insurance. 
and and I think that's what's sort of missing from this. You know, the, the real focus on that. What do we want this system to achieve? So can yeah. we be a broken record? Uh, just call call for a new pensions commission. Yeah. Sorry, Nathan. Go on. <laughs> no, I was going to say it's it's interesting, isn't it? That I I mean everything you're sort of saying there, Darren, I, resonates. I mean the way that we think about things at HL is to think through the lens of financial resilience and mm. we do that from a perspective of essentially how would a financial advisor sort of think through those challenges so we, we break that down into five so debt um, protecting your family having rainy day savings then the later life saving pensions bit and then investing to make more of your money and actually if you look at it through that more holistic lens Pensions are a very, very important part of your financial resilience, but they're not, they're not the only mm. challenge. And I do think thinking about it in the round is really, really important. And I do think also it's something particularly when you start to go into pensions policy around auto enrolment. If you focus only from a pension perspective, you kind of miss some of the bigger picture. So I, I would... I, rather than the pension commission, I'd prefer it to be more of a, I don't know, financial resilience commission, whatever you want to call it, but something that looks yeah. at things a bit more holistically. But no, yeah, that I'd, makes full sense, right? And and, and we talked before, and um, you know, you've got half the policy, you know, on pensions, but obviously the the whole financial well being and the whole uh, wider financial services policy uh, with the treasury, um, and then yeah. you've got the occupational work side with the with the DWP. Uh, you've got two regulators um, regulating something that really does need to be joined up, um, and I think there's a there's a structural problem there that gets in the way of of taking that more holistic approach. Yeah, so uh, I guess the other topic here, which is the angle that Jeremy Hunt has covered it from, and and Rachel Reeves, is that this is about essentially productivity and growth, mm. um, and you know. It, this is just a source of capital. There's a piggy bank somewhere called pensions. Um, and we should definitely try and raid it to, to uh, you know, essentially improve uh, UK productivity and, you know, try in some way to, to maintain our, our sort of position in the world. Mm. So I'm not sure those topics come into their minds. The, the most eye-catching piece, I was amazed. Um, they think that investment of 5% of your portfolio into you know, an expensive asset class or a series of expensive asset classes could increase the average pension by £1,000 a year. Mm. Um, you know, that is a very, very bold game. I hope that, that no actuary was involved in the calculation of this figure because I'd love to see what the assumptions are behind it, but they, you know, it doesn't pass my sniff test. Um, that is a ludicrously high figure. Um, so yeah, the, 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 this sort of, I think the focus is on essentially the capital markets and flows and, uh, you know, how potentially releasing some of this capital into the UK system, um, would help us, you know, innovate and, and build better jobs, uh, for people. Um, and then they've sort of created this, this sort of sticking plaster of a thousand pounds a year more, which just doesn't ring true to me, just doesn't ring true. Mm. So yeah, I think it would be a really interesting piece to, to see how it develops. And is that a, a thousand pound a year in investment returns? Yeah, um, per year um, or more, or is no, that about average ed- pension? Yeah, the average pension by a thousand pounds a year. Right, blimey. Um, so, but I mean, and then we have to talk about whose average pension because mm. if you extrapolate, what is it, ten million, sixty million new auto enrolment accounts um, at making you know minimum earnings over you know from twenty two to what sixty eight. Um, I'd be amazed if they're up north of ten thousand pounds a year. Uh, it depends again what their decumulation 
assumption is, but yep. um, you know, so so let's say it's ten thousand pounds a year, and that's quite generous. You know, to say that you're going to improve pot sizes by ten percent, you know, that's bold. That's very with a five percent allocation, very bold. Um, so good luck. I mean, the starting gun is is fired. We look forward to Nest and others being able to demonstrate that this this projection was right. Mm, be interesting. Interesting. Mm. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see the the numbers behind that in terms of full disclosure, Nico. Um, Indeed. Do you think they'll publish them? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so They're worried now. They're worried I'm going to do some maths. With them. No, they are, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> there, there is an interesting point here, though, isn't there? So where, I mean, ultimately, you're building in, in a, in a very, very passively managed space, you're building... Mm. You're building in a very, very actively managed component within that default, which I, you know, there's no kind of necessarily no issue with that necessarily. However, what you do, what you will have is as you get schemes allocate to private markets, they are they are going to start to look different in terms of their performance returns, mm. and they could lag and underperform for a period of time. And I I wonder how much the pressure comes to bear from the end the end buyer, which for most cases is going to be someone within the HR department within a business. And the challenge that you're going to get from that consumer, because they're getting pressure from their staff going, why the hell is my fund underperforming, is significantly different to you might get from, from a different audience. So I do think the dynamics of how this plays out are interesting, even if you have universal allocations at kind of the 5% level. So there's, there is quite a lot to be interested in how this develops moving forward. Yeah, I'm not going to trigger our VFM consultation response uh, rule, but you know, what is the value for money assessment of those independent fiduciaries if and when this 5% allocation lacks? You know, um, will they say, well, it, it should eventually be value for money? Will they say, you know, when is enough enough, right? Um, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to see how VFM which they used to think was the stick to beat people up on private markets might become the stick that beats it down. Um, so yeah, lots to lots to watch out for. And it will mean this podcast continues long into the future, Nico. Yes, 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 yes. We might have to change from VFM the the pensions podcast to DFM the financial resilience podcast, but that's indeed. that's yeah. to be done. Indeed, indeed. Um, so um, they bought you a cake, uh, Nathan. Uh, for your 20 years but, but how did you start off at um, Hargreaves Lansdowne and how did you get into pensions? So um, basically I studied a very important degree for a background in financial services which was geography and environmental management uh, and then basically I um, I disappeared away from university didn't really have a clue what to do and Hargreaves Lansdowne was well after a couple of stints at some other very sh- short-lived jobs we're asking graduates who are keen beans to come and join uh, which basically given I didn't know what I wanted to do I joined up and so I did a couple of stints on I was sort of trained up on a couple of help desk roles within HL initially for the first couple of years which mm. gave me quite a, a wide understanding and a really good appreciation of uh, what a sort of heavily engaged consumer base is kind of interested in and what sort of prompts their, some of their decision making uh, and then I and then I became a financial advisor for about six or seven years. So yep. I was uh, advisor to individuals, had to do 
I was a pension transfer specialist, which means that you're the geekiest of all the pension advisors. Uh, <laughs> and then I moved on to, uh, actually, I moved over to do uh, consulting around uh, the rollout of auto-enrolment for our workplace team. Uh, and then sort of once that was kind of all done and dusted, moved uh, into research and sort of public affairs and public policy from there. So kind of a mixed bag. I, I would say I've kind of been more focused at pen, on pensions at other points in my career, but then kind of hopefully moving slightly more broader at this point. Not that I don't love pensions, but you know, uh, there's a, there's 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 a there's a wider world out there, right? Of uh, other financial products are available. There are there are. So, and, and, and so 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 in a nutshell, you got into pensions by accident. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. As, as, as have most of our guests. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. so, so you're not an outlier there whatsoever. Um, no. But but. But, but what really interests me is that sort of wider experience. Um, mm. So I know we've had lots of chats in the past about engagement and the importance of good customer service and, you know, um, how to speak to and how could, to communicate with customers. And it's all very well for, you know, people like me and other people in the policy space to talk about this stuff. But there's, mm. there's no substitute for, you know, having listened into calls or actually having run something like that. Um, and it's, it's really good to, that you've got that perspective. Um, and you can yeah. bring that to your policy work. Yeah, yeah it, def it definitely helps, actually, I think, because you you understand what the drivers of behaviour are, um, which means, obviously, it doesn't mean that we, we can't get to that through discussion in a wider policy setting, but you kind of just have this instinctive uh, recognition because of the number of times you've sort of spoken to a client on the subject. So, yeah, it, de it definitely sort of frames your... <laughs> Uh, you're thinking of whether things would actually land if they're yeah. delivered, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, from my perspective, uh, 20 years in a graduate job, essentially, uh, fair play. It must be, Hargreaves must be a great employee. You must have really enjoyed your time there. Yeah, for sure. I guess um, it's obviously come uh, at a time of massive growth for the company. So you, <laughs> that's. Uh, I would say, you know, I'm not, I'm not claiming, claiming the credit for all of that, by the way. Um, but you, you, it does mean that you have. Oh, you should. You should. Why are you hiding <laughs> your light under the bushel here? Now? I'm, 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 I'm sure that would cause a bit of an argument with Mr. McPhail. Indeed. Indeed. But you basically have opportunities created all the time, right? And when you're in a growing company. So that was the exciting bit. And I think, you know, just generally it's the, the change in how you communicate and the change in, not just the regulatory policy over that time, but also the technological development, how we yeah. think of things from a behavioural science perspective, mm. the the ability to use data, all of that stuff just improves and improves and improves all the time, which continues to make that kind of world, I guess, really exciting because there's always more that you can do to sort of improve how people manage their money. Yeah. 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 I mean, HL is a sort of poster child for innovation in Britain, right? Um, and are you uh, are you Bristolian? Are you from from that past world? Uh, I was born in Oxfordshire, but have been sort of down the Bristol way since uh, since moving to university. So yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's an amazing city. So yeah, can't get enough of it. Really. Yeah, because I grew up in Gloucester, so there were there were two bright lights: Birmingham and Bristol. And it was very, very obvious which was the cool city to go to. Not to, to, not to slag off Birmingham. Uh, Birmingham's a bit kind of, it's quite easy to get lost in Birmingham. But like Bristol, Bristol's got a lot of character. Uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah I, know it, I know it pretty well and I really like it as a city. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so, uh, Nathan, what does what is value for money and, and what does it mean to you? 
Um, it's, it's, it's a good question, isn't it? It's basically the one that you can't ever answer very, uh, very well in a group because everyone always kind of has a slightly different opinion. So, I mean, broadly, the way that, that I've sort of come to think of it is it's the, co- it's the combination of cost and quality. And for so long, the discussion around value for money is of those two variables, cost and quality, it's reducing costs that improves value for money. But actually, I think you can also improve, improve value for money by improving the quality. Yep. So it's that kind of combination of the two. And I mean, actually, the value for money framework, I think, is the, the three buckets that they sort of placed there of costs, investment returns, and then the, uh, the service element. I think that is sensible. And costs and investment returns look broadly, you know, there's different ways to measure things, of course, and that's why there's a consultation and that's why people have different views. But they are, you know, pretty tried and trusted. There is, however, particularly in, when you think about life, you know, you know, pension planning, lifetime saving, however you want to think about it, there's an awful lot then that sits in that service bucket. But if you think about how broadly... A service at the moment within that framework looks like what I would determine, what I would call hygiene factors. It's how quickly, how quickly you process a transfer, how quickly you apply someone's premiums. I mean, uh, being being quite flippant, that's quite boring because most providers should be doing that as a matter of course. That's just kind of that's your job. Get on with it. Yeah. Now they, that doesn't mean you shouldn't hold providers to account, of course. But where's the for me? Where's the exciting bit? How do you actually drive the better outcomes for people? Not just are you are you doing the things that you should really do as a provider? So when we're thinking of value for money within our workplace space, we're thinking about how can we encourage people to increase the amount they they contribute for the future? How can we encourage them to consolidate their pensions? How can we encourage them to put in place a nomination form so that they can be confident that it's who they want to benefit if they they die? How can we make sure that we've built a habit where they're regularly reviewing their pension? And what does that review look like? And how do we help them to understand that? That's the kind of things that we're thinking about. So actual outcomes that we're trying to get clients to to take habits that we're trying to get them into in order that their future position will be better as a result of taking those short-term habits today if that makes sense so Mm. that for me is where if you want the discussion on value for money in workplace pensions that's what has to be driven forward it can't service cannot be hygiene factors it needs to be delivering better for clients because I know, I know, Nico, you come from this from an investment perspective, and we're absolutely convinced that there is a lot to do with the improved investment returns. But actually, if you just throw a little bit more money at this, there is a big benefit to you putting more money off aside for the future uh, voluntarily. And actually, if you can get people to do that, that's a big win. Now, it, the, the question then is who gets people to do that? Is it because you've given them a boatload of tax relief? Is it because the employer's delivered a matching contribution? Or is it because your provider's... It, you know, helped you to understand how much you need to save for the future and and helped you make that decision along the way, irrespective of what that is, that has to be a good thing for most people to be saving more for the future. So I think that's how I think of value for money. It's less about the, almost, it's less about the features and more about the outcomes that we'd be driving towards. Yep. So, so, so just on that, and that's a, that's a really um, good sort of characterization of, 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 of the issues and stuff, but we, we, we can all agree that, you know, um, for a given investment, um, 
path or strategy, um, the lower the cost, lowering the cost gives you value for money or incre- improves value for money. Yeah. Um, equally, um, if you're getting better investment returns, yeah, um, for the same cost, you're improving value for money. Yeah. Um, so the question around those two things, it's like, how do you measure this? What is the best way of measuring it? How do you deliver comparability? Yeah. Now you can yeah. have views and debates about that, but you can't argue about the outcome <coughs> that you're trying to achieve. Um, I think that we, we 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 dance around a bit when it comes to the service and the support side, because there are there are, there, are, there are different philosophies within um, pensions about you know what good actually looks like um, in that space, and I think that stems partly from the you know inertial default behavioural science people, yeah. Um, which isn't about engagement. Let's just ramp up contributions to 12, 15% or whatever. You know, let's put people onto default pathways into retirement, you know, versus people that, you know, put a higher premium on, okay, yeah, defaults work. We need to use behavioral science, but we do need people to actively own this stuff and engage. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is exactly the problem is that there is no consistent view. And, and you know, there are there are strong arguments to why you have, very very clear default hmm. pathways right but the default part the the pathway that exists the nudge uh in auto enrollment is incredibly strong because we're essentially putting someone in and they have to opt out it's yep. it's essentially the strongest we can get in behavioral science now what you're to do that you have to be convinced that that is right for nearly everyone that's going to be exposed to that nudge and i yes. think at the moment and you can probably say that that is the case but i what we've done in some research previously in our work on financial resilience is look at okay that works now but what happens if you increase further yeah. and the answer is that you absolutely destroy the short-term resilience of many households but particularly lower income households and particularly younger households who have an even bigger lag period before they can get on the housing ladder so in our our position in this debate is that if you want to go and increase contributions under auto enrollment to a minimum level and rely on defaults the entire the entire time, that's fine. But just understand what you're actually calling for and what the implications are going to be on different parts of society, because we don't think that's the right way forward. So, mm. I mean, on that particular topic, we think there is a different way that you can design the policy, which incentivizes incentivizes people that can save more to save more. So we know employer matching contributions work very well. That's the post, that's the sort of thing that can be done without it being thrust on everyone. You kind of make sort of opportunities available. So I, I, I think your point around behavioural science and coming at it, I would say we coming at it from a, a very behavioural science led perspective, but we're working about how you can use behavioural science to improve people's engagement and therefore their decision making in a world where we don't think you can ramp up the, the nudge under auto-enrollment yeah. much further without causing detriment to certain parts of society. Yeah, and this yeah. Um, this, this goes back to where we you know, were, were talking earlier on in the podcast about, you know, is, is it just about pensions or do you need to look much more widely? You know, and what you've said there, Nathan, is um, obviously a, a plea for the second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly it is, yeah, exactly it is. But again, it's like, I mean, my, one of my big, bugbears you, you started me now Darren so you're gonna have to, gonna <laughs> that, have to close this down that's, but, that's um, what we wanted that's what you wanted, <laughs> you've, you've you've been sat there with the baited hook right so uh, <laughs> so, so so we have this situation at the moment where the narrative is the self-employed have given up on pension saving and that is simply not true what you have 
is higher rate taxpayers who are self-employed continue to use pensions because quite frankly most of them are using an accountant and the tax incentive to put money in it with 40 percent relief equivalent and mm. probably pay basic rate tax in retirement is a huge incentive so people are going to take it take take that up basic rate taxpayers largely have given up on pensions but then the narrative comes to how do we nudge them to save into pensions well that's the wrong thing to be doing because it's more efficient for those people in almost all cases if they can access a lifetime ISA instead to access a lifetime ISA. So again, when we think about how we design policy, if your starting point is how do we get more people into pensions, you're you're designing something which isn't even the best outcome for the individuals who you're trying Mm -hmm. to help. So I think this is why you need to have a wider thought process around how people save what they're you know, what the drivers are, how you can kind of improve savings rates, which isn't just a default. The, the default works, sure, and it, you know, there's no doubt auto enrollment's been successful, but it's hard to go past that without, because because you do start to cause detriment. Yeah, I, I wanted to make two points in, in relation to your characterization of behavioral finance, Darren, that um, you, you might not like, we should say. Um, so uh, one was that I wouldn't, I wouldn't put inertia in the same breadth as behavioural finance. I always think of behavioural finance as being libertarian paternalism. So it is this sort of third way between, you know, no choice, inertia, you know, big capital, you know, incredibly heavy D default Mm. um, and full choice. So that the the glory of libertarian paternalism and uh, behavioural finance is like a mechanism to help people make better choices is you sort of come with some views as to what is best for them um, and that's the paternalism, but you're you're really trying to build choice architecture to enable them to make decisions if they if they're not in that category where it is best for them uh, because everyone's different and it's very hard to average. So I think it's sort of you know and and maybe some of the commentators on our podcast have have kind of felt that I I come from you know take away choice make it inertial perspective. I, you know I really don't. I do believe in choice in pensions, but I do believe that pension choice needs to be limited because it's really easy to make bad choices and, and somebody needs to uh, uh, you know shape the choices they think most likely to work um, I mean the big example is going to be in the in the run-up to retirement where everybody's going to be so different um, is it cash is it annuity is it drawdown is it all of those is it something totally different mm. um, you know writing defaults there I think it's going to be really difficult and possibly quite dangerous for, for, for douches. So that was the first point. The second point was just that there's layers to this, right? Um, Nathan, I really like your point around matching contributions. It could be that the default in true sense is for uh, auto-enrollment legislation to say employers need to offer matching contributions, not to force employees into a particular point of the matching contributions, yeah. but to say, you know, you need to have this mechanism because it's really important to offer people you know, the, the ability to, to, to save more and you as an employer need to, to help them, you know, financially to go and do that. So there's layers to this behavioral finance stuff. We, we often just think it's about the individual, but actually what we, if we treat corporations and, you know, small business as also being subject to behavioral finance, then we can start to see kind of government policy as being part of that kind of nudge and default mechanism as well. So I think it's, it's really complex, right? Mm. Uh, that, that I couldn't agree more with that point. So the, the starting point, my, my sort of starting point on all this is, look, I, I, it, I can't see auto-enrollment minimum contributions increasing short term. But what more 
can the pension industry do to work with employers to build in matching contribution structures? Now, we we are doing something locally in Bristol, uh, snappily titled the Bristol Financial Resilience Action Group, uh, aspiration <laughs> aspiration for HL to make Bristol to try and make Bristol the the most financially resilient city in the UK. And what we've done is to take our framework of how you build resilience pull together 19 different employers of all different shapes and sizes, 25,000 staff represented and deliver improvements in financial resilience through what benefits are offered through the employer. So we're helping to bring that those employers together to have a discussion around what good looks like and how you might decide, you know, think through these problems and how you might make the business case to your board, etc, etc, as well as the delivery of financial education to staff, which is the bit that HL sort of picking, picking up to to provide um, as part of that work. And this is really interesting to me is is because we've put in there within the framework, we sort of said that actually you should as an employer be driving towards facilitating uh, or incentivizing 12% contributions. So you don't have to give it to everyone as a starting point. That's not your entry point, but you should work towards incentivizing contributions of 12%. Now, mm. I was terrified when we launched this with the group because I thought, crikey, we're all in a cost of living crisis mm. and that applies for employers as well as employees. And there are a, a number of, sort of smaller employers there. And actually, the opposite was true. Every single employer was going, you're right. How, to, how can we do this? How can we build the framework? How can we build that choice architecture so that we are providing that framework and that help for, for our staff that need it? So it's it's really interesting. I think when you have like that, sort of slightly more detailed conversation about how you drive financial resilience and have specific pointers, you can start to get employers behind it. But coming back to your point, Nico, if you've there is a there is a way where in, where the government just says every single employer has to have, offer matching on top. And then yeah. the whole of the industry can swing in behind a you've got money left on the table at work, make sure you speak to your HR team to boost your contribution. Yeah. And then you drive engagement with pensions. So there's there's big benefits to that. Um, Nathan, just um, you know, on, on the size and shape of employers that are part of this initiative, can you say a bit about that? Um, you know, yeah. are they are they are they companies that really care passionately about their, you know, wider remuneration package and they're keen on pensions and stuff, or is there more of a cross section? So there is a cross section in terms of size and in terms of pay of those uh, groups. So we do have a couple of you know firms that are. You know, have probably have pretty well paid staff. There's also some which have quite a lot of minimum wage staff. So there are different challenges within that. We were keen to have a sort of broad church of groups involved. It's useful to have firms that already have a well designed benefit package because they can kind of build the bring the experience of why they have that and some of the challenges of getting elements of that signed off. But for me, the real advantage is getting firms that perhaps don't have that wide coverage because if we can sort of make changes to their benefit package to a to a firm with maybe 100 or 200 employees you're changing the financial future of lots of people because mm -hmm. you've got one employer who offered nothing in that space before who's just made it made a change but the, but, but but there are benefits that can be sort of delivered across the piece so hl as you can imagine does it delivers has a fairly generous benefits package for its staff. But one of the things that we challenged the business on, because we'd done this research, and we'd, we we essentially run a sounding board for our research, which has different stakeholders across those different sort of five areas that I mentioned. And, and one of the stakeholders, Step Change, the debt 
charity we've spoken to a lot um, through this process. And I was struck because they sort, of, they sort of said to me, look, one of the key things that causes problem death, one of the key catalysts is when the employer doesn't pay the member of staff what they're expecting. So they mess up the payroll. They right. don't yeah. do the overtime. And to me, that's just completely inexcusable. Mm. I am, I'm definitely of the opinion that people should take personal responsibility, but it's not, it's not their responsibility to make sure they're paid the right amount from their employer. So that completely falls down. So we, we made it a stipulation within this framework when we're working with these employers locally, that they have to commit to resolving payroll errors within a week. Now, HL broadly tried to do that, but didn't have a formal policy on that. And we pushed the business and said, no, no, we're going to try, we're going to suggest this is good practice for everyone because of our engagement. We need to follow suit as an employer. So I think even employers that are quite advanced on this, there's lessons that they can learn from thinking sort of holistically. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Mm. It'll be interesting to, to, you know, to follow that. Um, is it uh, how long is the initiative for? Is it just an ongoing thing? Is it embedded now, or um, is it a sort of test type thing? Yeah, we're running a test, a pilot for a year. Mm. Uh, so we launched it in May. We've sort of got a little bit, you know, so obviously through the early initial stages. Um, we're planning to sort of report back on how that's gone at the end of the pilot and sort of see how, if it's effective, how we roll it out again, how we might be able to sort of share some of the learnings of how it's worked with. Um, you know, government and other stakeholders to sort of see how that might be delivered. Because there's definitely an element where bringing together with a kind of regional focus has galvanised some yeah. of that enthusiasm. So. Yeah. And, and and for what about, you know, so so the the people you, um, you've got a self-select issue here, yeah, that the people you are using um, want, you know, see a motivation behind this. Yeah. yeah completely. Um, which, which is great. Yeah. Um, but not everyone can, you know, do a pilot with Hargreaves Lansdowne or be part of a scheme like this. Yeah. So, so where do you think that role for government comes in or regulation um, to, to drive, um, you know, some of the change that you've been talking about um, without, you know, people having to have an employee benefit consultant, you know, holding their mm -hmm. hand through this stuff? Yeah, so... So the the initiative I'm talking about is basically just trying to bring those employers together. I yeah. do think the employer has a big role to play, but there is also this question of if people haven't got that help, they haven't got that that safety net. How do you how do you help them? Now, there's this kind of discussion around. I think we often you kind of get into this. Well, you just need to deliver financial education, and the thing is, this and it's going back to the point I made earlier about what what news was I most excited about? And the, the news I was most excited about was something which sounds really tenuous, but actually I think the massive opportunity to innovate in financial services is, is around information delivery. Yep. Because at the moment it's boring, it's stale, and everyone always bemoans it. Partly though, I think that's a problem with regulation and partly it's level of risk-taking that people are prepared yep. to do. But yep. there is... There is a massive commitment from the FCA to address this. They're looking at the advice guidance boundary, which is part of the problem. They're looking at disclosure rules. Everything, the consumer duty gives that kind of overarching uh, umbrella, if you like, to say, look, actually, you need to be communicating in a way that people can understand and comprehend. It's not just about tick box compliance and send them at everything that they could possibly ever know on the subject and yeah. expect they'll make an informed decision because quite frankly they won't so that's exactly how we're thinking about the business at hl moving forward it's how can we 
make make help clients to make improved decisions what are the key things that they need to think about in the moment and how do we how do we help surface the right information at the right time that's kind of what we're sort of obsessing about now and obviously we've got loads of data which helps us to understand actually what our clients doing how, how might they be able to do things better what are the things that we position information to a certain audience at a certain time and that's kind of what we're working on with great gusto and that's why all of the changes within what the fca are looking at, at the moment we think will allow us to do more of the kind of things that we want to do to to help build those long-term relationships so that's the regulatory bit that i think that can really mm-hmm. really shift some of this but i also think there's lots that firms can already do so i'm just generally interested in how the consumer duty does start to shake up how the industry start to communicate with people because actually if you do start to get this delivered well within firms there will be there will be efforts to sort of copy that because ultimately people don't want to be confused yeah they actually want to understand right so that if you if you can crack this and deliver it well then you can you can improve decision making and do you think that consumer duty will get passed on to trust-based schemes? You it know, needs because to. It, it, yeah. It, need, it needs to. I mean, this actually, there's a one of the consultations that was out yesterday, which was on, uh, I forget the title, but it's something to do with improved decision-making for DC members at yeah. retirement. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really interesting because when it lists who should con- result, respond to the consultation, doesn't mention any firms that are already delivering this on the FCA side. It doesn't mention any financial advisors. That's the expertise you need. Yeah. We, know, we know how people make retirement decisions already. We know most of this. So why, are the, why, is, the, why is this a dual process? I mean, essentially, this is the yeah. same thing. It's people with DC money that need to make a decision. I mean, at the moment, and this is, this is kind of where the the whole point around decision-making at retirement completely starts to fall fall down because A, we don't know why people are making decisions from A, what what other money they have elsewhere. So we're kind of slightly, slightly in the dark and there's all this assumption that people are making poor decisions, but actually that's all based around drawdown. Everyone looks at drawdown and go, mm. oh, the, the withdrawal rates might be a little bit high in drawdown. What? There's 50, more than 50% of the total withdrawals of cashing out pots. Yep. Now, we don't get that beha- anywhere near like that behaviour at HL because people are consolidating with us to draw an income in retirement. If you had that same behaviour of consolidation of pots, whether it's forced through what we've seen announced or of small pots or whether you're encouraging people to consolidate some of their bigger pots together, you will start to get people making retirement decisions rather than life admin decisions with their money. Mm. So we yeah. think definitely at the moment what happens, if you've got... So five or six different pots, you don't take only the amount you need from your pension for that point in your life. You just take the whole pot because it's easier, it's cleaner just to get that money back. And then you run the risk of the money not being invested and not working as hard or essentially leaking out of your current account because there's some temptation to spend things that you didn't otherwise need the money on. So there's lots of problems, I think, in retirement decision making, but they're probably predominantly around the fact that people haven't consolidated and they're still taking their pots out as cash and then just to bring this back to your question around the trust-based schemes most of the in most of the trust-based schemes don't offer drawdown they don't offer drawdown so you're basically forcing people to go through a laborious process to transfer or actually it's easy you can just cash your pot in what do you think people are going to do in that environment so part of the least resistance exactly and so the point is it's kind of 
and this is why I was sort of reading, I only skimmed read that consultation yesterday, but it's a bit like partnering with a firm that would do that. I'm, I'm a bit like, as soon as you've got a delay, people want the money. If you can, if you have drawdown and they can just take the lump sum and then defer the rest of that money, yeah. A, it's more tax efficient, but B, but B, they haven't just kind of gone, well, the easiest thing is just cash in the whole thing. So I, I, yeah. I think that there's, it needs to map across, but there's, I think you mentioned this point earlier, there's no holistic view of essentially what good looks like for retirement. So as a result, you've got sort of trust-based schemes on one side, FCA on the other. There's mm. no difference. It's people just trying to access their money that they've saved, right? Mm. And um, you obviously had the government's response to the VFM consultation um, a couple, uh, yesterday um, on the day that we were recording. Um Anything in there that surprised you, Nathan? Um, you know, any, any key takeaways for our listeners on that? Um, <clears throat> there wasn't really anything that surprised me. Um, I think the things that I thought were good was uh, were, was the fact that they decided to measure gross returns, not net returns. Yep. Uh, not because I think that's necessarily a better measure, but because you have that risk of essentially double co- double counting, double counting yeah. costs in in the in your framework. Um, the service element remains, as we sort of talked about earlier, just completely doesn't account for any outcomes. And I think if you're when you especially have the overlay of consumer duty, which is all about driving good outcomes, I think that just looks like more work needed. Um, and and that, that is challenging. So I'm not. Mm. That's not a criticism. It's just uh, we we should, as an industry, say this is a starting point. It's not the end point on the service bit, especially. Yeah. Um, so I think I think that's that's kind of my main. That's not so great. I I, yeah, I think um, I, I sort of took from that as well a bit, little bit about the legacy pensions. Uh, what what interests me is to what extent how quickly they're brought in because really. Uh, I think that's probably where your biggest area of weak value for money will be because actually a lot of the workplace pensions, I mean, I know we're obsessing about value for money, but modern auto-enrollment workplace pensions are pretty well run. They're pretty low cost. Um, Some of the older pension schemes we know aren't. And actually if you create the conditions for the firms to almost kind of have to wind up into something to improve, I think some of them would probably want to do that. So so my, my sense is, if you've got a firm that runs two different, a legacy product and a brand new product, which has all the bells and whistles and is your best thinking, there is an argument to say, if I've got the power, why don't I wind people up into that scheme so yeah. that they have the best of our ideas, not what not what we thought the best of our ideas was 20 years ago. Um, yeah. So I think that's a missed opportunity, but I assume that that will come through in the fullness of time. Mm. And what about the, the, the phasing in of this? So they've, they've 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 sort of stuck to their original timetable by focusing on auto enrolment defaults first, um, yeah. and then looking to extend to retail and decumulation, you know, at some point of time exactly. in the future. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think the focus on defaults is sensible. Mm. Actually, I think that's the, that's where the the sort of main process has to lie. So workplace pensions makes absolute sense. You can understand why you might add then that overlay to non-workplace pension defaults when they come into play and also onto the retirement pathways uh the defaults we've got around that i think we start to get into quite murky territory when we start to drag outside of outside of those main defaults 
uh, sort of journeys that have been built, or default or default like, because yeah. because you then get into this problem of, but how much do we sort of factor in choice? And then think if you think it's hard to, to work out what the service element is on a workplace pension, imagine that on something which is properly being utilised for an individual retail investor. It's, yeah, yeah, it's much, it's wider still. And I think that that might be the challenge. So I think there's definitely something on, it makes obvious sense to map across to those other default investments. I'm not sure it makes sense to go much wider than that. And I think it'd be challenging to. Yeah. Oh, very good. Well, uh, I think we're pretty much probably getting towards time, aren't we, aren't we Darren? We are, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just wondering if there's anything else that we should have covered, Nathan. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> To be honest, I, I think we've we've kind of gone around the houses on a lot of things there, right? It's, um, it's, it's all uh, it's all very interesting. I think the the other thing, I, a couple of things maybe just worth flagging on that point around kind of um, that, that holistic planning. Um, we're just incredibly mindful, and this is kind of quite relevant for a pension audience, right? That realistically, this cost of living crisis is persisting, and that means households yeah. are in a really bad shape. Yeah. So. The research um, that we sort of produced uh, back uh, sort of back in the last week when we were talking about, so this is our financial resilience work, we've identified 630,000 households that are at chronic risk of the cost of living crisis persisting. Now, that's that basically means that they've got, they're spending more than they've got coming in now. Yep. They've got no cash and they already have existing debt. Yep. Now, to mm. the, that extent, I'm just, I'm looking at that group and going, literally what can the financial services industry do to help you there's almost there's almost nothing short of giving payment holidays if you're kind of in the mortgage or debt space but from a long-term saving perspective those households should they really be saving for a pension they're they're in chronic chronic danger and i think this is the this, this is when you look at it through this holistic lens and i think the other kind of watch out is just the the mortgage situation is really looking very, very damaging. So yeah, our findings yeah, also yeah. there were that 470,000 households are at critical risk of default, defaulting right. on their mortgage. Now, we we categorise that slightly differently to some other groups. So we look at you're spending 25% of your net income on mortgage repayments, but also you have uh, less than three months cash for a rainy day and you're spending more than you've got going out. So you're kind of talking about these these households almost have nowhere, nowhere to turn. And as soon as they remortgage, you can see them really in trouble. So again, it's just about the pension industry needs to think about the wider landscape, because actually we shouldn't necessarily be celebrating low opt-out rates or low cessation rates out of pensions at this point in time. It might be that that's the best thing for them to do. Mm. Sobering thoughts, sobering thoughts. I think this is going to be a feature of the podcast. Uh, well, hopefully not for forever, but um, we've got we've got a, a difficult period that we're in, and it, uh, you know it doesn't look like it's going away, does it? So um, yeah, no, no doubt we'll be we'll be picking up on this for a while, don't we? Yeah, um, we certainly will. Well, Nathan, thank you very much for that. Mm. Um, so what have we got coming up, Nico? Um, I'm just looking forward to August. Uh, you know, uh, with all these consultations, um, it's going to be a very, very uh, busy autumn, and you know, just, yeah. just, just need a need a bit of a break. Be nice. Yeah. Uh, well, look, next week we have Adrian Balding, um, who's going to be 
uh, talking to us about the three letters that are not fully banned, are they? CDC. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, coming up, uh, Sam Gold, um, Nigel Aston. Uh, I think we need to find a date uh, with Baroness Ros Altman. Um, but yeah, yeah you missed many, many booking, more people. You? I did, I did. Yeah, all my fault. If you're, if you're <laughs> um, so um, yeah, uh, lots of exciting guests coming. Um, you and I haven't discussed, but you know, possibly a special or two. I'm sure we can, we can find a way to grab one in, can't we? <laughs> we need to find the time, but yeah, we should we should do. Um, but Nathan, <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and views. And I've got one last question for you, Nathan. I've got one last question for you. Um, So last week we discovered that there was a new pink grasshopper uh, that was discovered in Britain. Uh, We decided we should have a cocktail competition. So uh, if a pink grasshopper was a cocktail, to me it sounds like a summer cocktail. Nathan, what would your pink grasshopper be made of? Oh. (laughs) I've got literally no idea. That's that's not my vibe of cocktail. We drink... uh, well, we drink cider down here in, in Bristol, you see. So um, maybe slightly, slightly, you know, some of those ciders go slightly pinkish colour at certain they do, brands. Don't they? So yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with one of those rather than show myself up for a lack of cocktail making skills. I like that grasshopper cider. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, well, yeah, I didn't want to doorstep you there, but uh, <laughs> thought, but you obviously did. Some, I obviously <laughs> did. Well, there we go. No, it's a cider. It's awesome. All right, um, Nathan, you've been fascinating. It was really great great to to chat to you Um, so thank you so much for that Um, until next time it's goodbye from me and it's bye from me Nathan Uh, and cheerio yeah bye from me